You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Luke Burgess, who is entrepreneur residence at Catholic University, also the author of a couple books. This one called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And then uh, this one you co-authored a while back. It's called Unrepeatable, Cultivating the Unique Calling of Every Person. Welcome, Luke. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Well, I think, you know, the main thrust of this book, Wanting, is it tackles this thing called the romantic lie, right? And it's funny, you know, that you think of this as the romantic lie because it's also, I mean, some people contrast the romantic movement with the, you know, enlightenment, right? Because it's, it's also something that the romantic movement shares with the enlightenment view of man, which is that, you know, they are these individuals and their desires sort of are primary, right? That they kind of bubble up. <laughs> so, you know, in economics, which is a field I'm familiar with the most, you know, we usually say, you know, there's Robinson Crusoe on his island and he's got these preferences. Where the preferences come from? Well, you know, they're just there. And you point out that we have long since known that that is a, a completely incomprehensible view of desire formation, but that for some reason we still sometimes carry on a, as if that is the case, right? And so people want to be authentic, meaning they want to figure out what they really want and so forth. And they fail to understand the embeddedness or the extent to which their desires are shaped by their surroundings and by their society. And of course, you talk about this as mimetic desire, and there's a whole theory of mimetic desire. But there's a couple other strands, I think, in the book. It's not just you know, where the desires come from, but it's also kind of the quality of the desires. So, you know, you talk about thick versus thin desires, and then you also talk about, you know, these desires that you don't use this term, but are kind of rivalrous versus non-rivalrous, right? And I think you use the term freshmanistan and celebristan. So we got lots of stuff to, to dig into, but maybe we can back up because you were a founder at one point. Right. You started a lot of companies, you were a serial founder and entrepreneur, and then at some point you kind of made this shift, right? Now you're an entrepreneur in residence, but I think more importantly, you're, you're an author and a thinker and you're trying to do something else with your life. So could you just talk about like what happened there? Why did you uh, sort of abandon the work of the founder and become more of this professional thinker? Yeah, I'm doing a lot of sense making now um, and doing some of it professionally, uh, but when I abandoned the hyper-memetic startup founder track that I was on, when I was in the middle of building my fourth company in my late 20s, uh, it was because I realized I wasn't able to make sense of my life, make sense of my own desires, the relationships that I was in, why I was pursuing the goals that I was. And you know, I, I just took the goals that were given to me for granted. And I realized that a lot of the goals that I had to sell a company, right, the, the proverbial exit, it's just, you know, it's the thing that every entrepreneur in Silicon Valley wants to do. Uh, at some point, I woke up and realized that that was kind of a silly idea. Like, why would I want to start a company that I'm presumably invested in building because I think it's doing some good for the world? And my number one goal is, is to sell it and get away from it as soon as I can, to just make money, to go find the next thing. And I realized that it was, I was caught in a really unhealthy cycle. 
uh, not enjoying going into work every day. And this is the company that I founded. So that's an unnerving and unsettling thing to realize. And I stepped away because I started to just actually do some reflection and introspection around that time for the first time in my life and realized that, you know, many entrepreneurs are hustling so hard that they don't take enough time to understand the meaning, um, the why behind what they're doing um, and where it's all moving towards, right? Like, okay, so I build this company, it becomes a billion dollar unicorn. So what, right? For, for what? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for the world? Because, you know, it's possible to create an enormous valuation on paper without having done a whole lot, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately. So I, I encountered one of the ideas that I encountered was the idea of mimetic desire, uh, meaning imitative desire, and how uh, you use the word embeddedness, which I really like, right? I, I was embedded in a world, in a culture. At that time, I was in Vegas. Uh, I was embedded in a culture of uh, hustle culture, a culture work hard, play hard, and of building things really fast, breaking things, and kind of just struggling to to build as fast as possible to you know to to sell. And my goals were had also been given to me and were embedded in that culture. And I I knew that I needed to pull away from it and create some spiritual distance, so to speak. And I did that in various ways. I did it by uh, putting some boundaries uh, in, up in my work life. You know, I typically would work till midnight every single day, and then woke up at six a.m. and went to the gym and did, did the whole thing all over again. So I put some boundaries in place. Uh, I, I realized that I really, really enjoy philosophy and theology, and studying, reading the classics that I totally brushed off in high school. Um, I felt this this pain that I had done that as I started to delve back into them, and it awakened something within me, which you know, in the book I call thick desires, to really imbibe some of that classical wisdom. And then I I, I began to feel like I had two selves, right? I, I have Luke, the the startup founder self, and then I have Luke, this this person who is really craving true wisdom. Uh, not just lifestyle hacks, you know, on podcasts and stuff. So that that caused this really uh, healthy tension, frankly. But also, it was a struggle, and I ended up stepping away from the entrepreneurship for a while to really explore um, myself, you know, my family, who I was, where my motivations were coming from. Some of them healthy, some of them not so healthy. And I realized that it was, uh, I had an incredibly complex and, and fairly messy life that needed some cleaning up, some, some untangling of my conflicting and rivalrous desires. And that sent me down the road that, that I'm, I'm really still on today. Well, I mean, look, you mentioned that you cannot escape m- mimetic desire, right? I mean, you, you have to deal with this. And you walk through some examples that, you know, how we've learned over the years the extent to which we are imitative creatures, right? So, you know, the minute we come out of the womb, we, we start mimicking facial gestures, right? Like we are imitation machines and this is what makes us uniquely human, right? And this is how we, we learn. And, you know, if you were to discover that all of your desires came from elsewhere, I mean, you know, you're not born wanting to be an entrepreneur. You're not born wanting to, you know, wear a particular type of clothing. You're not born really with any desires other than the desire to get some milk, I suppose. What's the problem with that, right? It's not a bad thing that your desires come from outside of yourself or are shaped by others, right? So 
when we talk about mimetic desire, I mean, sometimes that discovery leads to some distress maybe, and some, some concern. So how do we evaluate? I mean, is knowing that your desire comes from outside of the self and that you're engaged in this imitative behavior, is that enough, right? Is that awareness enough or does it help you to sort through which desires are desirable and which ones are not? Yeah, I, I think the awareness is a first step, but it's not enough. You know, the intellectual awareness is a first step. And we should just take a step back here and and clarify, you know, one thing. You talked as you you had a great open and, and mentioned, you know, this constructivist view of the self where, you know, I'm kind of born this blank slate and you know, I, I construct everything about myself from the ground up, uh, including my own desires, right? I just kind of invent them out of thin air. And then the other flip side of that, the other extreme is kind of this top down. I'm, I'm embedded in this world and I'm just kind of some automaton. Like I, I'm completely determined by my environment, right? Like all, yeah. everything is given to me by, by my environment. Uh, I think that those are two extremes and this is kind of debatable even among scholars of Rene Girard, right? Uh, to what extent are we just completely driven, you know, by, by mimesis? I think the answer is in, in, in between, right? Somewhere in the middle. And, you know, the, the will also comes into play here. You know, we can have an intellectual awareness of the forces that are operating on us. And then we can exercise some intentionality about, you know, the kinds of desires that we're going to accept and the kinds that we're going to reject. In philosophical terms, we can sanction our own desires and sanction our uh, emotions. You know, things come in and then we, there's kind of a space there where we can decide what to do with them, right? Um, if you feel like you don't have any agency, then then that that's a whole other discussion. But to the extent that you you understand yourself to have that agency, we can make a decision about what to do. I think that it wouldn't quite be correct to say that, you know, uh, we don't have any desires that are inherent. Uh, you know, Aristotle, um, this all the scholastics would say they call them appetites, not desires, right? We we have an appetite for truth. A baby has an appetite for nourishment, right? Uh, humans have an appetite for happiness. We desire happiness, right? Aristotle would say. So th that there is some desire there that's pushing us towards some ultimate goal. Let's let's call it happiness, right? That's so we're we're unfolding. We're, we're all we're constantly looking for happiness. We can make decisions that would appear to make us happy that actually don't because we misperceive uh, in all kinds of ways. And I think. One of the most useful frameworks for understanding mimetic desire and how desire can go astray, because it is a bit unnerving when you learn about this, you know, like you start to wonder, you know, to, to what extent have I been the agent in this life that I've created? And maybe I'm in, uh, I'm in a certain position right now because I have desired the wrong things in the past. And I've made irrevocable decisions, and now I'm living with the fruit of those decisions because I was desiring wrongly, right? Like when I was a teenager, get into all kinds of crazy uh, things. I wanted to run away from home and all kinds of stuff um, and made some decisions that I had to live with for a while. But that, that desire, that, that continual desire that human beings have for something, that's the important question to ask, for, for what, right? This brings in theological questions as well. But I think of desire as having a telos, a teleology, like the desire for truth. You know, we crave it. You know, we don't like to be lied to. And sometimes our desires can become deviated on the path 
They can become uh, confusing when we have a bunch of signals and we don't know, you know, which one to listen to. Uh, Gerard uses the term deviated desire, where you have, you know, a bunch of models that are uh, causing us to look to our right and our left and perhaps uh, makes it harder to hear some um, inner voice of truth that's calling to us or some kind of a, like a loving relationship that we we would we want to be in but maybe we don't even know that we want to be in it because we you know we have we've set a precedent um, and we've forgotten that so a big part of my book has to do with memory I, even though I don't use that word a lot with thick desires the whole process that I've outlined in the book for trying to understand a bit more about our desires is a bit of a remembrance, um, a mining and excavation of those things, remembering perhaps the things that we really desired before we became, you know, cynical, right? As, as, as an adult or something like that. So I think there's a, a really important role for the memory to play in helping to untangle some of these things and to bring clarity. So, I mean, you t- use the term hijack sometimes, and you talk about these mm-hmm. kind of motivational patterns. I mean, are, are the kind of motivational patterns, are these sort of, you know, like the stem cells of desire, and then they can be kind of shaped in any direction, <laughs> depending on the context. And, you know, if one is not careful, then the motivational patterns get hijacked and converted into mimetic desire. Is that sort of the idea? I think that's the idea. Um, they can be, there's a shadow side to those core motivational drives that I described, and they can become hijacked. Stem cells is a fascinating way to put it. I like that. Uh, I might have to adopt that one. I, I learned about this idea of core motivational drives from my good friend, uh, Josh Miller, who I co-wrote Unrepeatable with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been helping people unearth core motivational drives his entire career. His grandfather uh, basically invented a method for doing that. And he likes to borrow a term from James Hillman, uh, who basically calls it the soul's code, right? Just as just as we have DNA, you know, perhaps our, our soul has a kind of DNA or, or code, and it's unique in every person. And we, we can, it, it, the code is intelligible. And by looking at our lives and the actions that we've taken, we can often find patterns and we can find some intelligibility in the way that we're wired or, or motivated. That's debatable, but I, I, so in other words, there, there, there really is something innate, right? Josh mm-hmm. would say, and that core motivational drive can become hijacked, right? I mean, people can, um, use it in all kinds of ways. One of the core motivational drives, uh, I describe in the book that they've identified is, um, the drive to gain ownership, right? To gain ownership of a, of a process. Some people are really motivated to do that. Um, whatever they're in, they want to have complete mastery, but they really want to own it and have responsibility for it. Uh, that can be really good inside of a growing organization. Um, I I want nothing more than to have team members that own projects and uh, always feel a sense of responsibility. Um, however, I've also met somebody whose idea of gaining ownership was to you know uh, gain ownership over dating over people he was dating <laughs> and um and then and then as soon as he gained the ownership he would move on right and, mm-hmm. and, and entered into incredibly unhealthy relationships so i would say that that was a shadow side manifestation of what could be a, a core motivational drive that is good at its core but can be can be exercised uh 
in ways that don't don't actually bring long-term satisfaction. I, I, I like the, the analogy of the stem cells a lot. Well, you know, I, I teach a course called Behavioral Finance, and a big part of that course is about bubbles, right, and fads and fashions, right, and how they kind of emerge <laughs> and then crash and burn. And, you know, the, the whole idea is that, you know, there's this positive feedback mechanism where, you know, if I'm trying to figure out, and it's rooted in biology, right, you're trying to figure out what should you eat. So you look around, you see what everybody else is eating. And so, you know, you eat that. And this, you know, this makes sense, right? It makes sense in a lot of ecologies when you're trying to navigate an uncertain environment, right? You know, you want to learn from others. And we, you know, we map over the functional aspect of that into, you know, the lean startup movement, for instance, which you talk about in the book, right? Which is you need to open yourself up to feedback. You need to open yourself up to learning. You need to observe others. And from that observation, you know, figure out which direction you ought to be going. But of course, that thing can be hijacked, right? And that leads to everybody rushing in to buy Bitcoin at the same time and that sort of thing. So is the lean startup approach has been incredibly powerful, but you point out that, you know, maybe there are some weaknesses in it in the same way that pattern following has its strengths and its weaknesses. So, you know, how can you distinguish or discern, right, when imitative behavior, imitative desires is a sensible strategy for navigating the world? And when is it counterproductive and dysfunctional? Let me just tell you a short story about how I, I used the lean startup strategy really um, without even knowing what it was back in 2006 when I was starting a, a company called FitFuel. Um, we were really passionate about uh, healthy wellness, healthy living, um, healthy food. And we started a company selling um, wellness products, uh, everything from uh, fitness bars to uh, mm -hmm. dietary supplements on our website. And that grew to one of the largest wellness websites in the world. And uh, using the lean startup methodology, we kind of asked the market what, what the market wanted. And turns out that you know people wanted all kinds of things um, that were easy for us to put up on our website and sell that really didn't fit into why I originally started the business in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like all, everything yeah. under the sun, right? Like they wanted things for their cat and their dog and, you know, for all, all kinds of things. And then we, they wanted like help, like furniture that would help with their posture and, and, all, and then some, some really questionable products too. Um, and we put everything up there because that's what they wanted. And, and it just, it turned into an absolute, we were growing into Amazon or something like that, right? It just turned into this absolute beast of a, of a company and a website, got totally out of my control. And I had, I had lost myself as a founder somewhere in that process. Mm -hmm. I'd lost sight of some of my core values, some of the things that were important to me. So I started the business in the first place. And if you're not really passionate, you don't think that you're doing something good. It's really hard to have sustained energy to grow a company, you know. So that that for me was just, uh, you know, an a very personal example of how really the lean startup got got away from me. And I sort of realized, like at some point, you know, I, I have to have some boundaries. I have to kind of have a have a clear mission. Um, you know, know what the limits are. Um, have a strategy for what to say yes to and what to say no to. I think this can really be applied to um, a basic process of discernment in life. It comes down with uh, you know an understanding of who we are, of what our values are, um, and it doesn't mean that they can't change. Um, but just being uh, trying to articulate and, and to ourselves and in our within our families what those are, 
so that we can check new information against it, so that we're not just accepting it uncritically. And you know, this is a problem we get into on social media all the time. Like, what am I filtering all of this information through? And what's my heuristic? What, what am I? Because it's overload. You know, we, we have to have mm-hmm. some heuristics. So developing that also in terms of desires has been important. Right? This idea goes back a very long time, right? Uh, this idea of the discernment of desires. Um, St. Ignatius and the spiritual exercises are all about that. How, how can you tell whether you know, a, a desire is ultimately uh, going to lead to your good or, or not? So you know, I think one of the things that I, my book is a bit, and you've read it, so you know it's a bit of a strange mashup between these very practical business things and some things that are very spiritual <laughs> and uh, and philosophical, and I I kind of live in that uh, it's unsiloed right it's the unsiloed podcast so I kind of try to live in that space and make connections between these different areas and um, mm-hmm. I think some of the things that I learned in this very practical business setting I've seen how they play out in other areas of my life even when it comes to the kind of hobbies that I choose or you know the kind of um, you know the the kinds of social circles and events and things that that are attractive to me. They've helped me understand the why behind that. Now, I think at some point in the book, you made the claim that mimetic desire is on the rise. Right? Whenever I see any claims around historical trends, I always want to dig into them and try to figure out what evidence would there be for that. And presumably, that's not a good thing, right? So, social media is one arena, right, which facilitates greater imitative behavior, right? I remember one of the things that I I talk about in my class is people, when Amazon and Netflix and these other platforms emerged in the late 90s, there was this whole long tail hypothesis, right? And the idea was that once you move past the bottleneck of the bricks and mortar store in your neighborhood and you have a shelf space somewhere, you know, that caters to the entire country. Now, all of a sudden people with exotic, bizarre and individualistic preferences would finally have the ability to satisfy them, right? Because it would become economical for these companies to service them. But we've actually seen the opposite empirically, right? The long tail has shrunk. And this is, I think, surprised everybody, right? That the best sellers represent now an even higher percentage of merchandise than we had before the internet. And the explanation that is offered is that now we can see what other people are doing. And so we see a, the the positive feedback of imitative behavior accelerating. So, I mean, if everyone wants to be different and unique, how is it possible that we're all maybe imitating even more than we did in the past? Yeah, these things are tricky when it comes to the you know empirical evidence of imitation, but I, I think that we we have some right. I mean, that's a great example: the products and bestsellers. It's a little more. It gets trickier when we get to the level of ideas and uh-huh. um, and phrases and language. And I, I certainly think that social media is driving uh, imitative behavior when it comes to rhetoric, when it comes to emotion. And when it comes to ideas and ideologies, right? I think it's, it's, it's clustering people and leading to not just bigger clusters, but more clusters. Um, and that's interesting because like the, the, the mimesis is almost uh, happening at a smaller level now. 
you know, you can just, you can have somebody that somehow forms like a very small cluster of 500 or a thousand people that read their newsletter or whatever. And the, the mimesis can happen at these smaller and smaller levels to the point where we lose sight of what's actually going on in the society as things begin to go underground. At least some things begin to go underground. One of the reasons that I think that the mimesis is increasing is due to a breakdown in or a change, a phase transition between the two different kinds of imitation that Rene Girard talks about. And he talks about the kinds of imitation where the model is an external mediator, in other words, external to our world where we don't have any possibility of coming into contact with them because either they're deceased, you know, we, we won't physically come into contact with them, or there's just a, a great kind of existential space between us, you know. Um, now, this is the this is the celebristan that you talk I, about. I nickname it celebristan, you know. So, yeah. you know, grew up watching, you know, uh, Brad Pitt, and I was a I was a in theater and an actor when I was a kid. I did a lot of acting, and he would clearly be in celebristan, you know, for me. One of the marks of celebristan is that there's no direct competition and that there's no interaction, right? I can imitate Brad Pitt. He's not imitating me back. So there's not this kind of fear of what Gerard would call like reciprocal imitation, which leads to rivalry. But there's still, right, if you're trying to get the new John Morant shoes and I'm trying to get the new John Morant shoes, then there's going to be kind of, you know, rivalry between the two imitators, right? Between the two imitators, right? So yeah. that, assuming that we know about each other, right, and, yeah, and yeah. that we're, we're aware of one another, but that's exactly what the other kind of imitation is. Assuming that we are aware, that kind of imitation is what Gerard calls the internal mediation of desire because we're mediating desire to each other from inside of, let's call it the same world. I might see that you, you know, you purchased the new John Morant shoes and that will affect me in some way. And then what, what I do, you might respond to it. Maybe I get the, the latest version. It just happens with iPhones all the time. You know, you are looking at what version my friends have. Oh, your camera looks a little bit better than mine. You know, what is that? Is that the 12? I don't need, I've lost track at this point. So that is a different kind of world of internal mediation, which I nicknamed Fresh Manistan where we have a bit, you know, the, the imitators have a bit more in common with each other. We see what each other's doing. We come into contact with one another mm-hmm. and we can engage in this reciprocal imitation. And it reminds me of what it's like to be a freshman in high school. We're all kind of in the same boat. We're all looking around, hey, what, what's he going to do? What's she going to do? Right. And that is a different kind of a world. And I, that's what social media is. I think, you know, social media is made the whole, you know, it's called the town square, but in a sense, it's made all of us into internal mediators to one another, right? We can all interact. It's narrowed the space, right? The existential space between us and just made it a lot easier to assimilate ideas. It seems like we're all kind of living in each other's heads. Whereas before, I, I'm just thinking of people that tweet and say things online who write for you know a publication that I've never read before, right? It's called Vanity Fair or something like that. You have never subscribed to it. Now all of a sudden I can't help but not see them up on my feed. You know, they're what they say is served to me. I'm just dealing probably for some very good reason. They're probably saying something that I'm interested in. 
And it's just made it a very, very difficult world world to navigate at this level of desire. And I, I do think like algorithmically where the level of mimesis or at least the bombardment with models that are attractive to us is exponentially greater than what it was before. We're just, first of all, we're just exposed to a lot more than we used to be. Mm. And it's probably more likely that these models of desire that we're exposed to are precisely the ones that we're most attracted to because the algorithms are designed to show them to us. And I don't know if we're quite equipped or if we really know that that's happening at this deep, deep level. It's mm. not just on the level of, you know, I'm purchasing this thing on Amazon, but these things could actually be affecting my sense of self, my the lifestyle that I desire, all kinds of things. And, and I, so I, I'd love to actually try to objectify this a little bit. I just sense that it's happening. Well, I mean, is there a difference between the kind of herd behavior, imitative behavior that is not about relative ranking and the one that is, right? So for instance, you're a freshman you see everybody's wearing the Abercrombie and Fitch sweatshirt. So, you know, you feel like you got to go get it and then you go get it. And then the end result is that everybody has the Abercrombie and Fitch sweatshirts. The source of their desire is, is mimetic and it's kind of pointless, but it doesn't seem to result in all that much harm compared to a situation where everybody is trying to have the coolest sweatshirt. And there can only be one person that's coolest. And so it becomes this sort of, you know, arms race. I mean, it seems like the latter is more likely to, to lead to negative behaviors, right? And conflict. You use yeah. this example of the uh, Michelin star chef who decided to opt out of the Michelin regime. We're seeing a lot of universities that are opting out of the, trying to opt right. out of the U.S. news ranking system. So, I mean, one could you know, presumably just say, you know, I, I want to have like an am amazing restaurant because everybody wants to have an amazing restaurant w without fighting over some scarce number of spots, right? Is there a difference between this kind of non-rivalrous herd behavior and, and this kind of status ranking type herd behavior where the end goal is you don't question it too much, but it's still limited in terms of its supply. I think there's degrees of quality in all this stuff and they are different. So, you know, an example of clothes, there's a big, there's a big difference between concrete things and things that are abstract. The competition mm -hmm. for things that are abstract, like power, coolness, status, those things can theoretically, you know, go on forever. There's a big difference, let's say, if, you know, you live in a town or village where, you know, hardly anybody has shoes and socks. And, um, you know, the desire to have socks and shoes so that your feet don't hurt, that's, you know, you get the shoes. It's not really a, a, a relative thing. You know, you're, you're pursuing something that just makes sense at a lot of levels that are not mimetic at all, right? Now, if everybody all of a sudden gets shoes, maybe spurred on partly through mimesis, like, oh, that guy's got nice socks and nice shoes. And, you know, now everybody has them. Then I suppose you could enter into some weird mimetic things where all of a sudden everybody had to have Air Jordans or something like that. But there's something different in kind when it comes to status. And I think the Michelin system, especially in France, is a good example of that. Because by, you know, Sebastian Bra's own admission, you know, he had built 
the restaurant that he wanted to, and you know, an incredible restaurant serving the purpose that he set out for ma- making creative dishes, showcasing the ingredients from where he grew up in the Abrak um, plateau. And to the extent that other people wanted to do that, I think he would be all for it. Like, great. I would love uh, more amazing restaurants here in West Michigan where I live. And there's probably some extent to which positive mimesis is a great thing where it could, could actually help that. And you get a really good Italian restaurant and it ups everybody else's game. Love nothing more than to see that. But there seems to be a certain point at which the original objective, you know, good food, good environment, sustainable, like all of the things that comprise the mission, mm-hmm. we lose sight of them and they fade away and we, and we forget what they were in the first place. And that's where I think, you know, we, we cross some kind of a boundary line where the more abstract mimetic objects like prestige start to come in. And I'm struck by, you know, Sebastian Braz, the chef of that restaurant, Le, Le Souquet in France that I interviewed. I'm struck by the, the number of times they use words like forgot, I forgot, you know, and, and, that's, the, and that's why I mentioned it earlier that the, that the memory seems really important. So there's a difference between I think as we get into more abstract objects like prestige, the, it's easier for the mimesis to take hold. And then there's this element of forgetting, uh, forgetting what it, what the absolute measure was in the first place. Like when is enough enough, right? It's kind of like somebody that says that they want to lose weight. Well, how much, right? And what's, wh- what are you going to say when you get there? Are you going to, you know, now it's the moving goalpost problem is a real problem when it comes to mimesis, especially when we're not clear about what the objectives are. Yeah. I mean, I I like to say, you know, don't let school get in the way of your education, right? But this is a tough sell with my students, right? I mean, you talk about Maria Montessori and I I had a Montessori education. And so throughout my entire educational career, I I never paid any attention whatsoever to grades. I just said, look, am I, I want to learn and I'm going to do everything I can to learn as much as I can. And the grades They'll fall wherever they fall. But in, in a way, that's kind of arrogant, right? I mean, what it's saying is that I don't trust the evaluator, right? And that the evaluator doesn't have the right criteria. But I mean, for most people, they don't know what they're supposed to be learning. And so they need somebody to kind of tell them. And when somebody says, yeah, you know, you got to see, they respond to that and say, okay, well, I got to do more of the stuff that's going to get me the A, right? So, I mean, if, if everybody just decided to ignore the rankings and, and the ratings, then the probability that they'd be chasing something that, you know, the wrong goal would be high. I mean, what, why do we think that everybody has the capacity to arrive at some independent criteria for evaluating what matters? Well, I, I don't think that we, I don't think that everybody does. And maybe there's some way in which the objective criteria works as, I mean, it is important. I like to know how I'm doing, but it doesn't mean everything. And, you know, this is a really hard thing to get students to understand. You know, I'm still working at it in many ways. And, you know, to what extent is a grade a a measurement and a tool that can help us gauge where we're at, but doesn't determine, you know, our worth. It says something very specific, perhaps about a specific subject and how well we understand that specific thing within certain all kinds of constraints, right? With a certain testing method, with certain criteria. 
I'm not a subjectivist philosophically. So I think I live in a, I live in a world that exists and there are real things in that world. Mm-hmm. That's really what almost every time I talk about this with my students, we kind of come back to this idea of using things well, you know, things that are meant to be used, we should use well and understand their proper place and respond to them and give them the adequate response without responding to them in a disordered way, if that makes sense. So you know, I, th- I think the, the problem is not that we have the Michelin star system. I actually like it because you know, there are people that know a lot about food that, that go and investigate these places. But I also know that it's not the, you know, that there are some restaurants I like that aren't even in the guide or that have one star and I mm-hmm. think that they should have three. And does it affect my experience negatively because, you know, it's not ranked as high as, as it could be? Or there's a lot of movies that I like that have mm-hmm. really terrible ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, I look at it, I say, okay, I, I really like this movie <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend it. I think it's really good. So it's just, th- those things are data points. Right. I mean, you know, some people will say that the reason why they are trying to maximize their income, let's say, is because they think that that correlates with the value that they're contributing to the world, right? They see that as a grade, right? They see that as a objective metric of their worth to some extent. So, I mean, there's an element of truth there, right? But now, I think what you're saying is that if you if you make that your sole objective, then that leads to a perverted self in some way. Yes, and you know the example that you just used there, I, I hear this all the time. You know, the profit as a measure of the real value that one has created in the world, right? So, you know, somebody's uh, you know has created a billion dollar company, has become extraordinarily wealthy. You know, that's a measuring stick, a sign, you know, that they've created a certain amount of value. But the, the, that value is, there's an objective aspect to that, but the value is subjectively measured by the people, right, that are buying the product or the service. So there's also a subjective uh, element to that as well, right? I can start a, a, a lot of morally suspect companies that could probably make a lot of money because people value whatever that thing is, right? They, they value it. Even if I think it's objectively, has an objectively negative value, value in that sense is subjective. So we get into this, it's kind of a both a both and situation. If you, if you think that it's an objective measure only, then you can really be deluded. Right into thinking that these things are measurements of the worth that you're, you know, you're bringing right into the market or something. But there's an interplay there with with all of the subjects' evaluation of it, and that's a whole other discussion that we'd have to get into schools of thought and economics. We probably don't have time to do that, but that's that's kind of the way that I I view it, and I try to get the students to kind of see both of these sides and then wrestle with that tension that exists. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a lot of this content of your book is based on the work of Rene Girard. So how did you um, discover his his work? How did you get exposed to the ideas of, of Girard? I was on a, a week-long silent retreat, and I had I met with a retreat director every day who was assigning me readings. And this was a spiritual silent retreat, so was, all, all the readings were from Scripture, they're from the Bible. 
And a lot of the, and I, what I didn't know at the time was that this retreat director was a Girardian. He was a scholar of Rene Girard. And, you know, at various points, the, the readings I, I came to see later uh, were all had mimetic aspects to them, right? So, you know, you've got, you know, Eve eating the forbidden fruit in the garden. She didn't come, with that, come up with that idea on her own. That was a desire that was suggested to her by the serpent. You have the mimetic story of Joseph and his brothers where he's sort of turned into a scapegoat, all kinds of things. So on and on and on. And, you know, I'm reading all of these. And at the very end of this retreat experience, he suggested that I'd finally read Rene Girard. And he said, I think Girard might help you find some patterns in some of these stories. And he did. So I read, uh, you know, one of Girard's books called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, probably his most theological work. And I, I began to see some of those the stories that I was meditating on for that week. And I saw the way that usually negative mimesis that leads to conflict and violence was playing out in those stories. And then um, I, re- I got my hands on everything that I could possibly read by Rene Girard. And I realized the breadth of his work spanned you know, scriptural studies, theology, literary you know, analysis. His very first book was called The Seat, Desire, and the Novel. And it was a look at classic works, mostly of French literature, and showing the way that mimetic desire drives a lot of these plot lines. I saw the sheer breadth of Girard's work. You know, he was this tremendously unsiloed, interdisciplinary thinker. Those are the kinds that I'm always most attractive to. And I, I saw the same truth, <laughs> this, the core truth that he was describing, which is really, you know, the mimetic nature of human desire in all of these different domains. And at one point that made me skeptical. It's like, well, you know, this is kind of like a, a theory of everything which I'm always a little skeptical of. But then I started to see it in my own life, and I thought, you know, this is a probably the most powerful mental model that I've ever come across that explains all of these varied things and is also, you know, I've seen this phenomena play out time and time again in my life, and then it became extraordinarily real for me. Now, you offer up a bunch of these tactics. One of the tactics that I didn't see there was, you know, go read some novels, because I think that would probably be what Gerard would say, right? Go read Proust, <laughs> go read a lot of literature. So maybe we could talk about some of these tactics. What is the goal of the tactics? And how did you come up with this set of recommendations for people? These are all things that I've used in my own life. So, you know, the list is not, is not complete. I think the one that you mentioned is a is a fantastic tactic, particularly because most most people read nonfiction these days. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of readers of fiction, especially among men, is really low. It's going down. So I think it's a, it's an anti-mimetic tactic in a sense. And uh, I think some some fiction is better than other fiction for seeing. Some Proust is great. I offered fifteen because they're they were the as I reflected on. You know, how have I actually grappled with this core question of mimesis in my own life? These are all things that at various times I've implemented. And this book came out two years ago. And I've probably heard of uh, 50 that people have told me about that aren't, that aren't on this list. I mean, these are just 15 that I was limited by space. This book probably would have been three times as long if, if it was up to me. But my editor didn't like that idea. But it's been really interesting for me to hear, hear other things that people you know, have, have done, you know, including travel. You know, that's, that's, that's another one that I'd put on the list because, you know, travel, um, we are embedded 
you know, in a, in a time and a place and in a culture. And, you know, travel exposes us to things that are very different than what we're used to, right? I think, you know, mimesis plays out in a very different way in, you know, some different countries. Like it, it plays out very differently in Japan than it does in the U.S. And depending on the, on the cultural kind of, you know, structures. So, you know, I think travel is an important one because it, it takes us out of whatever fresh manistan we're, we're in or where we spend most of our time and brings us into contact with places where the dynamics and relationships play out in totally different ways. Yeah, and I think reading literature and history, particularly literature from different time periods and cultures, is a way of traveling without leaving your home. It absolutely is. And uh, it, it, that, whole, that journey that I described at the beginning of our conversation, when I, I, I took a sabbatical, I, I stepped away, and I, I had these boundaries with my work life, I was just doing a heck of a lot of reading. And a lot of that reading was, was fiction. It was literature because it transported me away from really an environment that I'd, I'd come to see is, is not ex- extraordinarily healthy. Mm-hmm. Right. And so among the tactics, I mean, you talk about sort of silence, right? And retreats mm-hmm. and, you know, getting away. I mean, it seems like, you know, people now spend a whole lot less time, right, in sort of a state of silence. I mean, depending on how you define silence, I mean, we have our phones at the ready, right? We have information at the ready. I mean, it seems like people don't even get bored any anymore, right? I mean, I, mean I, I can remember the day when, you know, you'd be standing at the bus stop and you'd have to kind of think. <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. now the minute you're, you're at the bus stop, you whip out your phone and maybe after a second or two, right? And so, I mean, how important is it that people have carve out time for reflection yeah it's well it's critical we we don't i mean most people bring their phones into the bathroom with them right you know it's it's you know all of those little odd moments throughout the day that we would have to just be with ourselves are gone because we can distract ourselves by whipping out the phone in our pockets and i think part of that's because um you know a lot of people are scared of themselves um, or maybe have not spent a lot of time with themselves and they're afraid of what they might find in their own heads and there's, there's this, you know, smartphones are a great means of diversion. I think people are starting to see that this is a problem. And, you know, for instance, I, I was, I've been invited to an event here in Michigan where I'm at next month where, you know, they're, they're saying no, no phones during this two hour event that I'm going to, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's just a rule. I, I'm already seeing technologies that are being implemented that, I mean, it's almost ironic, right? It's, it's like, more technologies to help us deal with the technologies that distract us. Mm-hmm. I think people are starting to realize that it's a problem, right? I mean, the Surgeon General has just come out and said that, you know, this is contributing to mental health problems in teenagers in the U.S. Um, I, behind the scenes, at, with, as an entrepreneur, am actually trying to build some things to help solve this problem. You know, so it's, I, I think it's probably the most important thing on the whole list, to be honest with you, as, as a tactic, right? And um, helping people develop this, you know, these the, the habitus of presence to themselves and and to other people. Uh, you know, I, I think about this a lot when it comes to, you know, podcasts. You know, some of the best conversations that I have are, you know, in my backyard. You know, having a beer with a friend or an acquaintance or somebody, and we're totally present. You know, there's no audience. There's something really special about that. But I think those opportunities are becoming harder and harder. Um, like we need to learn that skill of being present mm. because we're always on, we're, we're just on all the time, you know, social media, phones, 
And when I say on, I mean, you know, let's, we're, we're sort of, we live in a world where everything is, you know, recorded, everything is, uh, we're on stage, you know, all the world's a stage, right? That's Shakespeare said. So stepping off that stage from time to time. So that doesn't necessarily mean going on a silent retreat as I have. I've been very lucky to have had the opportunity to go on those. Sometimes it just means stepping off that stage and then just being alone and being with ourselves and the people that are close to us. Well, I mean, do you think can good ideas diffuse through the same vectors as, as bad ideas, right? I mean, I hope so. If people are, people are wired to, look around and, you know, see what other people are doing and, you know, have their desires shaped by the ecology. I mean, is, is there any reason to think that we could not engineer an ecosystem that would, you know, promote good ideas? Or I, I, I believe so. Um, I'm betting on that. The answer is yes. Um, you know, that this positive mimesis is possible. I, I think social media is set up and engineered to amplify the negative mimesis. I think it's you know it's it's profitable for a lot of these platforms to amplify some of the rhetoric and and you know some of the anger. Um, it gets reactions. Uh, I think that you know it's it's definitely the good the good things can also work. They they work in in the same way though, but they're just not um, at least a lot. Not a lot of thought has went into building some of our current technologies to safeguard this. So I think, you know, this, this idea of, um, giving, making, uh, reducing some of the friction that people encounter, um, at the idea of going on a silent retreat, there's a lot of friction involved there. Um, a lot of people wouldn't, you know, willingly just, uh, do it on their own, but they're much more likely to do it. If some of the, some of the boundaries are removed, like what if, what if, uh, all of their friends want to do it with them? Um, you know, what if it's just easy to go book, uh, one of those retreats online? What if it's cool? <laughs> um, you know, it's right. not really cool to do that right now. Right. It's so like, I, I think that it's possible to do that and to create this see you um, post, posting on your Instagram, like here I am at the, at the silent right. retreat, check it out. <laughs> right. So I, I, I'm, I'm betting that, that it's, it's definitely possible to make some of those changes. Well, now in the book, you distinguish between thick and thin desires and in the book on repeatable, right. You talk about vocations. So can you talk a bit about, I mean, what makes something a vocation and, you know, how can one go about discovering a, a vocation? I, I think that the, the word is often misinterpreted. And I, I saw on social media just the other day, you know, somebody um, saying, you know, it's this idea of having a calling is really toxic because you have companies that can kind of use that against people, right? And sort of, you know, it's just a job and it's a contractual agreement, you know, they're getting paid. Um, but, you know, it's some some companies really frame these things, right? It's like, this is your calling. You'd be all in and ends up demanding way more from people than they mm -hmm. should have to give. And he said, you know, the, the big problem here is that, you know, we've sort of couched th this, you know, work as, you know, every, everything has to be a calling. Some jobs are just jobs, right? And they, like, right. they just need to be good enough put food on the table. So there's a sense, I think that's, there's a sense in which that's absolutely true. Um, when I talk about calling and vocation, I'm really referring to uh, who I am and an understanding of, of kind of who I am, um, core motivational drives, uh, developing um, a sense of self that allows me to navigate the world and make uh 
prudent, wise choices about um, the things that I expend my energy doing, right? What I say yes to, what I say no to. Because, you know, the, there's, the demands are more than I can handle. And if I don't have a sense of self, if I don't have a sense of calling, then I'll be totally overwhelmed and say yes to everything. And then I'll end up losing myself. So I, I connected to a sense of self. Um, there's a whole, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm Christian, so I, I have a very theological understanding of calling too. But I think if you're not, there's a sense of calling that's related to to who you are and how you can exercise the gifts and talents that you actually know yourself to have, right? And, and to use those to serve other people. So that detaches it from calling being any specific job to being, mm-hmm. I have this, you know, I, I, I have this sense that I'm, you know, called to be this kind of person that I seem to be. And, you know, now this job is not allowing me to do that anymore. So now I need to find a new job. So th- this calling is not invested in the thing itself, right? It's something much more personal than that. So it can transcend any one particular job, any one particular action. Um, and it becomes like a heuristic or a tool to discern the kind of direction that, um, that we want to move in um, or that we're being called to move in. So that, that whole book is really about what, is, what does it mean to have a personal vocation, unrepeatable. And the idea is that um, a vocation is something intensely personal and that you know, mine is because of my unique uh, created nature, because of my time and unique circumstances that I've been born into, my unique family, the people that I encounter on a daily basis, my personal vocation will be different than anybody else's who, who's ever lived right? Because of the the concreteness of it and learning to kind of uh, think of it in very concrete terms, you know, that who are the people in my life, right? That, that are around me, you know, what ways am I called to respond to them makes vocation a lot less of an abstract thing and much more concrete, right? My, my dad's had a lot of health problems the last couple of years that presented itself to me as a calling right? So it wasn't, you know, you know, I'm, I'm it's called the right books and, you know, um, think about these big ideas. Uh, it's part of it, but I also have a family and I have responsibilities and duties. So my calling is not unattached from those things. So I think developing a more comprehensive understanding of that idea of calling and not kind of the superficial one is, is important for our entire society. So then you wouldn't say, for instance, that, you know, your calling is to be the founder of a website that sells wellness products, right? But you would say that that's consistent with your calling or inconsistent with your calling. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, f- founding a web, founding a company or any website would, would be one manifestation that a deeper calling to being an entrepreneur, exercising those things. That is very much a part of how I understand myself to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just one manifestation. So I'm not so attached to it. So if I get too attached to it, well, that company doesn't work out, then it destroys my sense of self. So there's got to be something deeper there where that that is just becomes one way to exercise or live out the calling. I'm not always right about it, by the way. And I learn from some of the wrong paths that I go down. Um, I, I often tell my students, like, take internships, experiment with different things, because, you know, if you realize that that's not the path you want to go down, then it's better to understand that right now. You're going to learn something about yourself no matter what, and then integrate that into a more holistic understanding. So is this a set of tools that help you to resist 
mimetic desire? I mean, you said you can't escape it. I mean, are, are you resisting it or are you picking and choosing, right? Having some kind of filter that allows you to decide when you want to allow these external influences to impact you and, and when you let them brush over you and bypass you. Yeah, that's right. It, it is it is a matter of being intentional about the influences or the models that we commune with in our lives that that we're close to. And an example of that would be, you know, I've never considered myself a very patient person, right? And I there's there's somebody that I in my life who's incredibly patient. And it's it I, I see the goodness of that. I see how it how it, you know, it's it's actually uh, if I was in his shoes, I, I would need to make decisions much in, much quicker, and they probably wouldn't be prudent decisions, right? Um, but he's able to exercise that in a way that's uh, incredibly. Um, I see the wisdom in it, right? It's incredibly attractive. It's like I want, I want more of that. I want a desire to be more patient. Um, and this is somebody who, um, you know, is has had a tremendously positive effect in my life, right? It certainly helped me with that. And who also sees things in me that I don't see in myself. So it's in, in one way, I think uh, these ideas, this sort of framework, the things that I try to set out in the book, in, in one sense, they have to do with being intentional about the relationships that we're in, the models that we're exposed to, the way that we respond to them, the way that we assimilate uh, things into our lives for better or for worse, and hopefully to move to a place where we're being we're being more intentional. I, I didn't have any intentionality at all in terms of the models that were affecting me until I was 29 years old. You know, my life has been very different since then. Well, Luke, thanks so much for joining me. This book, Wanting, it's a collection of insights that will give you an introduction to the theory of mimetic desire and also provide you with a couple of tools and tactics to help you become more intentional about what models you choose to import into your life. Also, this book called Unrepeatable, Cultivating a Unique Calling of Every Person. Check it out if you're interested in learning about vocation. Let's chat again soon. Hopefully, I'll see you out in Berkeley sometime. I, I hope so. Thanks so much, Greg. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.